You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. The vertical affects the horizontal. The vertical affects the horizontal. What do I mean that the vertical affects the horizontal? Well, your relationship with God will affect your relationship with one another. How you're doing with the Lord will affect how you're going to be doing in your relationships with one another. In the last few weeks, we looked at what Christ-centered holiness is. As we gaze upon Christ, on who he is and what he's done for us in his death, resurrection, and ascension, and is soon to become again, and as we fix our eyes on him, as we set our minds on him, that enables us by his grace then to, to kill resolutely the old nature and to put on our new nature. And that is what? Of compassion and gentleness and goodness and, and um, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, centered on love, right? That all of these things that we do because we're centered in love, because of the love that God has for us in Christ. And in that passage in, in that we studied last week, we looked at how that, that putting on is how it affects generally how we we interact with one another in the body of Christ and in the world in which we live. But I want to now bring it home where how this vertical relationship with, we have with Christ now affects our family relationships. I'm going to read the passage through for one that talks about also the slave master, but I'm going to today just focus on the, hus- the um, family in marriage and in, in, and in children. But we need to understand because we have this union with Christ, because we have this 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 relationship with Christ that says that we have a new identity, we have a new status, we have a new power. In fact, we have a new ethic on how to live out our Christian faith among one another, especially as it relates to family. And so let's look at that at Colossians 3, verse 18, reading through 4.1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we gather around your word as we look how you are instructing us and how we're to live in our families, among husband and wife, among parent and children. Lord, we pray for your grace as we, as we study this passage. Help us to grow in your grace. Help us to know we need you to live out in a way that honors you. Uh, we can't do this apart from our growing in our relationship with you. So Lord, do that work even now as we, as we study this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie Jerry Maguire, as many of you have seen that movie, Jerry Maguire, it's about a successful sports agent who is confronted with what is important in his life. As the story unfolds in his pursuit of fame and wealth, he loses all of his clients except one, 
an egotistical, self-centered, but gifted football player. But even as he was that agent of that football player, he meets a woman with a, a young child, a single parent with a young child. They eventually get married, but after a while, the wife feels it is a mistake. In one of her interactions, she concludes about her relationships in a very sad way. She says this, on the surface, everything seems fine. I got this great guy. He loves my kid, and he sure does like me a lot, and I can't live that way. It's not the way I was built. I think what I get from that, that phrase is that she understood that re relationships are reciprocal. The reciprocal obligations. God has never intended our relationships to be one-sided. Husbands have obligations as do wives. Parents have just as a binding duty as do children. And if we, if we are truthful and honest though, we have often made our relationships about ourselves. They're often one-sided. We have either pursued our own agenda or we neglected the agenda of another in our families. We have, in a sense, resisted to put on this new nature that we have in Christ, to put on the clothes of Christ. And instead, we lived in our relationships out of our own will. Paul is reminding us that Christ-centered relationships, especially in the families, are only possible because we are in the Lord. And because we are in the Lord, we can live out this new life of Christ in our marriages and within our families. So what does Paul mean when he says we are in the Lord? He says something like that throughout this section. He says, in the Lord, this pleases the Lord, for the Lord, a master in heaven, he talks about. I believe this points back to Colossians 3 in the beginning part, where Christ has established a real vibrant and growing union with believers. And as a result, he is now Lord of our life. And now our relationships with our spouse and our children must flow out of this union we have with Jesus Christ. In fact, he provides the way by giving us a new nature, again, to remind you of that, and a new ethnic, ethic, enabling us to model his love to others through his spirit. Let me say it another way. We've been talking a lot about the supremacy of Christ. We've been reading Colossians 1, 15 through 20, every week that reminds us of the supremacy of Christ. And because Christ is supreme, that means that even in the most intimate relationships, we must keep Christ supreme in these relationships. So this morning, we're going to look at these relationships between husband and wife and between parent and child. So turn again with, to me with Colossians 3, 18 and 19. In today's culture, this may sound like offensive, but here we go. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Even in this relationship, and as he describes this relationship and the parent-child relationship and the slave and master relationship, something interesting happens. In each of those cases, he is confronting the culture of the day. We need to understand who's in the audience. They are Greek, or they are Gentile and Jew. They're slave and slave children, and, and, and children who are free children. So you have a mixture of people made up of this congregation. And so he's addressing 
multifaceted generation, a multifaceted community. And so he first starts out with directing his conversation to wives. Now, during this time period, in both Jewish and Roman culture, wives were considered as inferior beings. They were not considered equal in that relationship. In fact, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was a possession of her husband and had no legal rights. This is who Paul is talking to. A husband could divorce her at any cause. In the Roman culture, a respected woman lived a life of entire seclusion. Her husband demanded of her complete servitude and chastity, while he can go at as much as he wants and can enter into many relationships outside of his marriage. So this is what Paul is coming to. So Paul is encouraging that because of Christ and your union with him, there's a better way to relate to one another. We have a new ethic. And so you need to understand, as Paul addresses the wife first thing, that was revolutionary. Paul is addressing wives out of respect for them, acknowledging the, acknowledging the freedom that they now have in Christ that says to them they, that they have a mutual responsibility in this relationship, that they are equal in this relationship based on who they are in Christ. See, a relationship where the wife submits not out of fear or inferiority, but out of her love relationship with the Lord. And where the husband sacrificially loves his wife because he values her significantly as the Lord values her and desires the best for her. What does Ephesians 5 remind us? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church who sacrifices for her, who desires her, who cherishes her, who gives herself for her, right? Who loves, in a sense, Paul is encouraging in Ephesians as well, as the husband loves his body, he's to love her as his own body. That is what he said. He said he, he's, he's counterculture here. He's, he's, he's saying husbands and wives, you're to operate much differently than you have been used to. Because you're union with Christ, you've been given a new way to relate to one another. So Paul tells the husbands, one way of, not, of showing love is not to be harsh with them. Again, Paul challenges the culture of the day and exhorts husbands not to be overbearing, not to be tyrannical, not to be authoritative, not to be intimidating towards his wife. If he has authority, he must use his authority in constructive ways, not in destructive ways. See, the former way husbands was if your husband did not submit and if they were vocally defiant and insolent, the temptation for many of the husbands during that time were to be harsh, angry, or to assault, or in extreme cases, lash out in physical and verbal ways. Paul was reminding the Christians in that church, husbands and wives, that there's a better way. Because of your new life in Christ, because of the union we have in Christ, put on love, put on compassion, put on gentleness, put on kindness, put on grace, put on the spirit of bearing with one another, put on forgiveness. I do believe in today's culture, I want to give a warning. I want us to understand if a husband would ask anything of the wife to do, which is counter to the word of God. 
that goes against her conscience and common sense, she has the absolute right and duty not to submit to him. God does not require a wife to submit blindly here. Paul is not saying that. He's not calling the wives to be doormats, no. Paul is reminding them that they have an equal standing. They have an equal voice in their marriage. They are mutually together. They are a team working out what it looks like to live as husband and wife. In fact, the wife submits voluntarily, not forced on her by her husband. The word submit is in the middle voice, which matters, compared to active imperative for the children when they're called to obey. See, the, the, the woman submits is out of her allegiance to the Lord, it says. Out of the allegiance, it reminds her that she's, that she's loved by God, that she's strengthened by God, that, that she is her, her ultimate source of contempt, contentment, not her husband. And so submit not because of what the culture tells you to do, but you submit out of your relationship with Christ. He, he himself is our model, right? That, that Christ gladly submitted unto the, to his Father because of this love relationship that the Father and Son had with one another. He gladly submitted himself to the will of the Father. See, a husband who knows the Lord and that he and his wife are both equally and deeply loved by God is commanded to love. Again, agape love, supernatural love, a love that comes from God, the love that is God, the love that is seen through Christ. He's to love that wife in that same way. He's absolutely not to exercise his rights over his wife. In fact, his love, which is Christ's abiding love, is willing to forgo his rights in order to honor her. He demonstrates a love that is deliberate and caring, showing concern for her well-being. See, God designed us for a mutual relationship of depending upon one another and to submit to one another. In fact, right before the Ephesian passage, it talks about submitting one to the other. There's a sense that husband and wives learn to submit to one another, learn to, to figure out what would be best as a couple and as a family. They do that with equal voice, learning how to do that in love. I think that's why Jerry Maguire in the movie, once he heard and figured out that his, that his wife was struggling, he had a reminder, no, honey, you complete me. You complete me. See, a husband and wife complete one another. In our union with Christ, we understand that we need one another to, to, to live out our lives together. Right? We're one, right? When, when, when a couple comes together in marriage, we say they are one now. They're, not, they're two people that become one in desires. But if we're honest, we wrestle with that, do we not? That's why I think Timothy Keller um, challenges us and says something very profound. Listen to what he says. Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confronts you with yourself. Do you hear it? Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as confront you with yourself, right? Marriage, I know about, for about you, but marriage for me exposed more of my sinful heart, showed me more of my weaknesses, brought out more of my selfishness, right? 
Now I have to learn to share life with another woman. What does that look like? Oh, I need to talk to her about things before I go out and do things, right? Or, hey, if she wants to talk, I need to be willing to forsake maybe watching the ball game so we can talk about life, right? But when that happens, it exposes some selfishness that may I, be, I might be struggling with. I needed to learn to grow my union with Christ and able to, to forsake my own interests and forsake her interests. Right? God is calling us to be each for the other in our marriages. Husbands, how are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? That is an ongoing experience, right? We repent. I always tell husbands, um, in my discipleship or in my counseling room, as husbands, we are called to be the chief repenter. Why? Because we're showing our family our need of Jesus. And what better way to model Christ is to show our need for Christ, our dependence on Christ in order to love one another. Paul now turns our attention to parents' relationship with their children and children's relationship with their parents. Listen to 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. All the kids kind of nudge their father right then, right? Again, as wives were considered a little better than property during this time, children were regarded even less so and considered the property of their father and their status a little better than slaves. In fact, one slave in one of Dio's Christosom's works responds to the taunt of a freedman in this way. Perhaps you do not know that in many states which have exceedingly good laws, fathers may even imprison or sell their sons. They have a power even more terrible than any of these, for they are actually allowed to put their sons to death without any trial or without even bringing any accusations against them. That's the plot of the kids during that time. You would not want to be a child during that time, would you, you would think? See, the father decided where the newborn would be raised or how he would be exposed to die, or exposed to die. He granted permission for his children to marry and even decided who they could marry and could even force a divorce. Again, Paul is being counterculture here and he confronts it by directly talking to the children. As he directly talked to the wives in his congregation, he is directly talking to the children now in this congregation. And that shows the children that they are independent, responsible people. And so as independent, responsible people, he commands them to obey their parents in everything, reminding them of the fifth commandment to love and honor your father and your mother. This command also assumes as well that the parents, listen to me parents, will not demand anything unbiblical from their children. Paul's exhortation to the children takes for granted that the parents have their children's best interest at heart. So the children's duty is to obey, which implies a readiness to hear and carry out orders, much like a soldier to his officer. The child is to listen 
and carry out the parents' instructions habitually, consistently, eagerly, like my kids did all the time. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> Paul reminds the children that it is that it, that, that it is transformed into obedience to the Lord. You're doing this because out of your relationship with the Lord. Children, if you have a relationship with Jesus, he enables you to respond to your parents in obedient, respectful ways. As you understand his love for you, children, and his grace he's given to you, you can respond to your parents in obedient ways. Because so, you're obeying not only to them, but ultimately you're obeying your Heavenly Father. Again, Children, whatever age you are today, may I encourage you to focus on your vertical and your relationship with God and get in touch how much, how much God loves you and cares for you as you look at Christ. And so when your parents are asking you to do things that are biblical and important, that is best for you, that you would, by, your, by faith and your connection with Christ, would be able to obey. Again, look to Jesus as your model in your power because his, he willingly obeyed his father's will. He, willy, he was willing to forsake his desires for the sake of his father because of his, he knows how much his father loved him. Again, children, you have no duty to obey your parents if it's in conflict with your conscience illuminated and guided by scripture. And everything when Paul talks about does not include obeying when a parent is asking you to do something sinful or unwise. Do you hear me? I deal with in counseling situations where many parents have asked their kids to do horrible things. God forgive us if that's our case, but may that not rule in our lives. Fathers to children, turn you now, we turn our attention to this next phrase. Fathers, do not embitter, do not provoke your children. Basically, fathers, do not pick a fight with your children. Fathers, do not conspire against them. Now, we know that both mom and dad are tempted and do embitter and provoke their children. But in God's economy of relationships, Paul is singling out the father as one who is head of the family, and he's asking, him to lead, asking the father to lead and showing Christ's love to his children. In fact, the father's love for his children transforms his authority from power to nurture. The father's goal is to nurture the heart of his child. Again, to be honest, right, our problem is that we, we are tempted and we often do provoke and bitter our children by either being too lenient or being too severe. But each child is different, right? My daughter, Amanda, is much different than my son, Samuel. And so in, in, my, in, our, in our journey to raise our kids, we needed to explore the hearts of our children and find ways to know them better in order to properly care for them and to discipline them in a way that honors the Lord. In fact, gospel, Christ-centered parents use discipline only to help their children see sin through God's eyes, to help them see their heart sins are the real issue, and that sin has consequences, yes, but that God forgives us on the basis of his son's cross, not on our performance, and that God disciplines us because he loves us. Some discipline will be necessary, but we must be always administered with a loving and gentle spirit. 
Parents should not give in to fault-finding or always nagging them. Again, as I want to lead my family and I lead as a husband, as a chief repenter, I want to be a chief repenter to my kids. That, yes, I sin too, and I need Jesus' forgiveness too. So when we come along and discipline our kids, we come not as one who's better than our kids, but we're on that same journey together, learning and growing together, finding Christ in the midst of our struggle. Why don't we want to bitter them? Why do we want not to provoke them? What does Paul say? So we, not, we, so we will not discourage them, right? Parents who become too demanding, too severe, you will create within your children the feeling that it is impossible to please you. In fact, to be discouraged, another translation is to lose heart. We're, 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 allowed, we're making our kids to lose heart. It's a listless, moody, sullen frame of mind to develop that even a little bit further. So the father or mother who berates his children affects their maturity and converts the child to anger. And depending how healthy the relationship is with your child, it will affect them. It will affect them. I counsel many teenagers and young 20s who've been affected by the way their parents have interacted with them. And it has paralyzed them where they have feel like there's no value that they bring. There's a, they struggle with their identity. And they do not know how to get out of it. And I don't share this to bring guilt on those who might have done that. What I'm saying to you, that we need to be mindful because of our union with Christ, that there is a better way for us to interact with our children. In fact, we are to model the Father's love to our children. Again, because we are dearly loved by our Heavenly Father, we have died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we've been ascended with Christ, so we have a better way in walking with our children. One of the most beautiful examples for me in Scripture is the parable of the prodigal son. I like to call it prodigal sons. Maybe a better title is called the prodigal God, as Tim Keller has referred to that passage. But think about it. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people of the culture of the day, leaders, and he shares his story of, his, of this one son, the younger of the sons, wanting, an inherit, wanting his father's inheritance. You need to understand in that culture, for a son to want the father's inheritance before he's dead is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want no relation with you, Dad. I'm out of here. Father gives him the money, gives him an inheritance. He goes and he spreads it on sinful, wild living to the point where he's destitute. He's living with pigs. And for the Jewish culture, to live with pigs is a great, the greatest humiliation that you could ever experience. His, the son comes to the senses. He comes back. What's going on? His father's still looking for him. His father never stopped wanting his son to return. His father is constantly looking at him. And so as a, as a father is, sees his son coming back, who gets there first? The father runs through town. Now, for a Jewish father to run through a town whose father, whose son said, I wish you were dead, in that culture, again, people are shocked to hear that a father would run through town to embrace his son, to kiss his son, to welcome his son. 
And when the, when the son is saying, Father, I have sinned against you, even in the midst of that, he said, I have, my father's so excited. We're going to throw a party. You're back. You know, he wanted to come as a hired hand. and said, no, you're coming back as my son. Fathers and mothers, that is the kind of love that we've been, that we've been received in Christ. That is the kind of love that God wants to show to our children. Amen? Parents, what is your ultimate goal for your child? For your child to be 100% obedient to your authority or to be a follower and a lover of Jesus? Is your goal to raise compliant children or for your child to grow in the knowledge and, and the love of Christ? Parents, where in your parenting do you need to change in order to show the grace and love of Jesus. May I encourage you and me that we must keep the gospel in front of us at all times. To the parents' duty is to live out the gospel before our children. That is, we need to assure their, our children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are, for how God has created them, not for who they ought to be, not for who they should be, or what they might become. See, obedience must never be the condition of a parent's love. A love so conditioned would not deserve the name. We love them no matter if they obey or disobey. Our love is not based on their performance. Our hope is when the parent is when a child is obedient to Christ-centered love, the child's obedience may become love full of glad and loving response, much like we desire in our own relationships with the Lord. But that is not contingent on how we're to love. I had to learn that. I have two different kids, right? One who wanted to go to college and one who knew that he did not want to go to college. I, my mind, from the early stage, both my kids must go to college. But as their journey unfolded, it made more and more sense for my son not to go to college. That was not where God would want him to go. That is not what he is designed to do. He's designed for something else. And I had to die to that. My parenting wasn't successful based on if my kids got to college. I measure my success of my parents. Do they know Jesus? Are they lovers of Jesus? That must be our goal. So I encourage you this morning, in your relationship with your spouse, in your relationship with your children, parents, in your relationship with your parents, may the love of Christ be the defining, motivating factor in how we do life together. And that is possible because of this union we now have with Christ. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we set our things on things above, as we gaze upon who he is and what he's done for us, that enables us to pose ourselves with a radical love that we've received and we're able to share that in our lives with one another. Pray with me. Gracious Father, I know in my own life I have, I, 
repent it and continue to repent often and how I have failed to love my kids like you have called me to love. But I am also thankful that you do not give up on us. I am thankful that you're about redeeming us and redeeming our relationship, that it's never too late to redeem our relationships within our marriages and with our family, with our children. Father, as we humbly cast our, ourselves to you, knowing that we need you, we need your wisdom, we need your love, we need your grace, and I'm thankful that you supply it and you want to help us in being that kind of husband and wife you called us to be and the kind of parent and child that you want us to be. God, continue to help us be a support to one another and finding ways to help one, us, one another, to be people who are about bringing Jesus to the hearts of ourselves and to our people that you have called us to love. Do that work of grace, I pray. Amen. Let us respond in song. <laughs>